everybody. This is Tuesday Morning Grind, episode number 37. Today we have Robert Berry with us, also known as that audit guy, and we'll talk about how you earned that, that name here shortly. But you're a public speaker, podcaster, author, uh, even, I would say, motivational speaker in, in many ways. So uh, excited to get into it and talk about audit and building the brand that you've built and everything else. So thanks for being here, Robert. Hey, thanks for having me. You know what, though? I would add awesome auditor to the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> you're uh, you're one of the few people who will claim such a title with enthusiasm, which is excellent. Absolutely. So let's talk about it, man. You uh, your website's that audit guy. How does one become and build a brand around that audit guy? What is it? How did you get there? You know, so okay, so th- this story I've I've told before, so this is not a fresh one, but it actually started out when I was uh, in my mid to mid twenties. And I was working for Deloitte. And you know, when you work in big four, they send you from client to client. And I had this baby face. I probably still have a baby face now just with a little bit of facial hair, but I had this baby face. And I remember going to this client's office and I walked in one morning and the CEO was looking for me and I could hear him, but I couldn't see him. And I heard him asking these ladies, where are our auditors? Where are our consultants? We were doing a consulting uh, gig at that point. And these ladies were like, oh, you mean those little young guys running around here that don't know what they're doing? And I was like, whoa, okay. You mean those auditors, that auditor? And and then he said, no, I'm specifically looking for this one. His name is Robert. And, you know, so, you know, we live in a PC world and I just think that's crazy sometimes. He didn't want to say, you know, the black guy. I was the only (laughs) black guy. I mean, easily, if you wanted to distinguish me from everyone else, you could have just said, you know, the black guy. So instead he said, no, you know, the one and he started describing me. And then one lady said, oh, you mean that old audit guy, that audit guy, that auditor there, that guy. And it was meant to be derogatory. So anyway, I overheard them and he had left by the time I got to the ladies. And by the time I got to them, they were red in the face because they knew that I'd overheard some of the conversation. But see, I'm one of those people. I don't get angry. I have no anger at anyone for anything. So I took it and I said, OK, this is how you guys refer to me. Now, mind you, later on that day, I just had a meeting with his, with the CEO where we told them that we had saved them approximately one point six million dollars. So I'll be that audit guy as long as I'm still getting results. You can think whatever you want to think about me, but we're getting results here. And so I said, oh, if this is what you think about us, OK, I'll be that audit guy, I'll be that one that helps your organization save one and a half, almost one and a half million dollars. So you can be as derogatory as you want to, but I'm still the one that helped you all out. And that's kind of how it started. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of have two areas of discussion that I want to walk through. One is this this awesome brand that you've built, because I'm intrigued by entrepreneurs and solo entrepreneurs that have built a brand for themselves and monetized it and all that stuff. And a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs and stuff, so I think they'll find that interesting. The other piece of it is this auditing. I want to talk about some of the talks that you give around asking good questions and being a good auditor. And a lot of that stuff's applicable far beyond auditing. It's, it's applicable in life to so talk about a little bit about. So let's start off with um, the brand and, and the, the company that you've built and, and what you're doing. So you were at Deloitte, and then uh, you, you spent some time in, uh, in, I guess, banking, audit, and then also in the university system. Uh, as an audit executive there. And then sometime along the way, you started doing the podcasting and writing books and building this brand. Can you talk about that journey? How, how did how did you start building this thing and realize that, hey, this is kind of a little business I have going on my hands? You know, 
honestly, it started initially on accident. Um, I was I was working for a university and I joined this association. And when you work for a university, you don't have big budgets for training. And with most professional associations, if you teach at a conference, they'll give you some perks. Like they'll give you half off registration or maybe allow you to attend the, the conference in full and pay for light limited travel expenses. So I just started training and people just kept saying, you're different. We like the way you tell stories. We like the way you don't kill us with PowerPoints. I don't do PowerPoints with words on them. I use pictures. Uh, I, I tell people all the time, it's unfair for me to ask you to read something from a PowerPoint slide, listen to me and look at this ugly face all at the same time. That's just really unfair. So it all started by accident. I was just training at conferences to get cheap or free registration. Um, discovered that I was good at it and said, hey, since I am that audit guy, why don't I be that audit guy? So I built a website, I think it was in 2012, and I put up my first online training course. And I swear it was a two and a half hour training course. It took me four months to do it. <laughs> the very first one. <laughs> um, and, you know, that was the website. That was the first training course. I kept doing training and I kept doing them. The more training courses I did, either in person or online, the better I got and the more people kept requesting me. So that's how it started. Right. Um, and because I'm a curious creature, I said, well, I wonder if I should write a book. And I started talking to some traditional publishing houses and I found out that they would give me three percent royalties for writing a book. And I said, well, now nah, I can do this crap myself. So I researched it, found out how to do it on Amazon, wrote, edited, published, designed a book cover for my first book back in 2012. So then I said, well, you know, while I'm doing this, everybody seems to be selling merch on YouTube, so I might as well sell some merch. So I said, well, can I design some merch? So I designed some shirts that said, I love audit, I love compliance and, you know, um, LIFO the party, you know, that's, yeah. you know, LIFO like in accounting. And so I designed the merch, put it up in a store and started selling merch. So all of these things just happened because people kept saying, well, you can't do this. And I was like, oh, yeah, watch me. <laughs> So you're, you're a good public speaker. Sounds like naturally, like I don't think you went to school or were formally trained as far as we've discussed. And then you have this scrappiness of an entrepreneur to kind of kind of figure out ways to hustle and, and make a buck and turn it into turn that value into to a living for yourself. What do you attribute that to? Oh, OK. <laughs> that, that OK, that that's a really interesting question. I attribute it honestly to growing up poor in the hood. I mean, you know, you when when you're in an environment where I tell people all the time, we we didn't realize how poor we were. But as we got older, we realized we were so poor. We oftentimes played cops and robbers with real cops. Uh, now, that's a joke. But uh, <laughs> but, you know, when you when you grow up without stuff and you see other people with stuff, you're like, well, wait a minute. What do I have to do? To get money? What do I have to do to survive? And you start plotting on ways to make it in life. And for me, it was going to college, getting an education. And then I, I looked at the corporate sector and I said, wait a minute, this isn't all it's cracked up to be because there's more. Well, what else can you sell? What do you have to sell? 
And I didn't think I had anything to sell until I started training people. And I realized I had a product and a service to sell. But the drive behind it literally was being poor, being born poor, not wanting to die poor. And wanting to help other people, too, because like in my neighborhood, a lot of people look at poor neighborhoods and I don't think they realize it's a family. Back in my old neighborhood, we still have like neighborhood reunion parties. And I'm 47 years old, man. Like we still talk to one another. Those were like that was my family. That's interesting. man. I I hear that a lot. And uh, I actually have a very similar background. I I grew up in South Atlanta, uh, very poor family, you know, uh, free lunch at school and all that stuff, man. And uh, and I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who have a similar type of background. And I think there's just something about uh, maybe a little bit of uh, appetite for risk because it just doesn't seem like that big a risk. Like, you know, I've, I've had worse. I can survive. And also the scrappiness, just like the culture that you grow up in. There's a little bit of like uh, a wittiness and scrappiness that, that gives you the ability to, to speak quickly and off the cuff. And uh, also just the grit. Because it's hard to be an entrepreneur, right? I mean, you got to like be crafty, a self-starter. You have to grind day over day. You have to think of ideas, execute the ideas, build your own website, write your own book. And uh, if you just grew up from the age of, you know, zero to 12 being scrappy, it's just not that hard. You're like, I, I, I got it in me. It's in the DNA. So that's one of those little advantages that folks who grew up a little bit rough just kind of have because it's okay. I can I can live like that. I can live hard. Nothing else seems that bad anymore. So it's very interesting. I mean, when, when you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain, you're willing to risk a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And and everything else just uh, doesn't seem like that big of a risk. Because uh, what's the worst that could happen? Like, I, I still go to sleep in a comfy bed every night, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That's awesome, man. So you wrote uh, you wrote your first book. You did some, some speaking stuff. You started the podcast and you started building a, a, a brand around that. You know, I want to get into your first book. So um, it's the book around uh, how, how to ask good questions. Yeah. Or actually, you have a talk, a talk. It's a speaking series that you do, I think, I saw about, about asking good audit questions. Oh. And then I saw it on your website. And then on, in that talk, you, you uh, and maybe part of the book, too, you mentioned, like, the composition of a question, different types of questions, and, and how to ask good questions. And that got me thinking, I think uh, I've definitely, uh, we've been audited. I've audited lots of people. We do part of that at Risk360. And uh, it's one of those things I took for granted in terms of if you're really good at asking a question, you can disarm people. You can get the truth out of them. You could uh, find answers to hard questions that they didn't even know that they had. So talk about that. What is a good question? What does a good question look like versus, say, a bad question? You know, it it really depends because... So with with the book, a lot of people were shocked at the book because you know how auditors are. They just want a formula. You you give me a list of good questions to ask and then let me go. Well, no, I don't get down to actual questions until the very last chapter because the quality of your question depends on, well, who you are as a person, your personality. I mean, like if you're an assertive person, you're going to ask a different type of question than an aggressive person. And you're going to an aggressive person is going to ask a different type of question than a a passive aggressive person. Right. Uh, But then it also depends on the person that you're dealing with. If you're dealing with an uneasy, cantankerous audit client, you need to tailor your tactics a different way. So in the book, I talk about the various personality types, who you are as an auditor, who your clients are, 
Then I talk about the various types of questions, the various, I, I have what I call the five critical elements of quality questions. I'm not going to give those away, but there are five elements your questions must have. All of this you got to think about before you even ask the question. Um, so there is no hard, set, fast rule for what a good question technically is. There are some rules surrounding what components your questions must have, if that makes sense. It does. So what fascinates me about this is how did you structure your thinking to be able to write a book about asking good questions? And what I mean by that is like some people are good at it. Like you can have a good conversation. People have asked probing questions. They're genuinely interested. And suddenly you've revealed your whole life story to them. But not many people think to break that down into components and to structure it in a book. Is that something you do naturally in terms of structuring your thinking to explain it to other people? What was that process in writing that book and giving that information? You know, so some of it was instinctual and some of it was accidental. Right. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I was one of those crazy kids that was always taking stuff apart just to see how it worked. So I remember first computer I had was like the Tandy or ColecoVision or something back. So I'm old enough to remember when the first PC was, was put out on the market, right? And when it got old, I took the darn thing apart just trying to figure out how it works. So my mind just works like that, which is good for an auditor. But the accidental part was I was working for this one organization and I had this guy come to me one day and he said, hey, man, you know, I hate what you do, but I really like how you do it. And I was like, oh, I mean, that is kind of an insult, but kind of a compliment, but kind of a compliment, <laughs> but kind of an insult. Like, which is it? It was a compliment. And for me, again, wanting to figure out, OK, I'm an auditor. I suppose I'm supposed to be one of the most hated people around here. And yet. I was going to lunch with them. They would call me. We would have a good time together. So I just asked him, what is it that you like about what I do or how I do it? And when he told me, I started asking other people in the organization and the answers were very consistent. And I said, you know, I said to myself, I've got something here, you know, th like this is a formula. And so I went from doing it accidentally to now purposefully trying to incorporate the things that they told me. So, yeah, I think it was part instinct, part accident, and it just it came together. And when I started writing the book, I was like, oh, well, actually, I developed a training course in 2012. And then the book came afterwards because this has been a process I've been using since 2012. And then you in a training course, obviously became book because you have to do the outline for the training course. Then you have a, a book that makes total sense. Yeah, I but the it. book didn't come. So that book was my third book. That book didn't come until this year. Okay, that's your your latest book. That's right. Nice. So, um, the uh, coming back to the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So, you, you, it's interesting. You have your niche, your audit clients. Uh, how how are you seeing that evolve? You've been in this game for a while in terms of what risk folks are worried about. Are you seeing like any trends, especially with like COVID and stuff like that, with the type of risk that people are concerned with? Or is it just like mostly soft skills? People need those soft skills to be decent auditors. What are some of the trends you're seeing there? So the trends that I'm seeing for auditors or for audit clients? Well, let's go with uh, for the for the clients, for the types of things that uh, if you're being audited, what are some of those trends? You know, it seems like everybody is concerned with cybersecurity. Yep. Cyber, cyber, cyber. That's all you hear. And it's fascinating because 
cybersecurity is not new. I mean, the term cybersecurity is a new-ish term, but I mean, protecting your information, information security in and of itself has been a thing for a while, right? Last time I checked. But most people seem to be concerned with any compliance with laws, rules, and regulations, and then cybersecurity. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing we're seeing. So like, obviously, Risk360, we focus in on cybersecurity risk. But uh, to your point, it's been around 20, 30, probably longer than that years. Uh, it's just coming to the forefront of the public consciousness because of like headlines and, and the abundance of technology and all the politics associated with security and privacy and things like that. So we're seeing that at the top of the, the board's kind of list. I know you spent like, uh, I think I saw about 10 years in the university systems, uh, two different university systems. Talk about what is it like that to be an audit leader there, like as opposed to like private sector? So, you know, it's, it is quite different and unique. So I would say in the university setting, if you ever meet someone who was an auditor in the university setting, and if they're looking for a job, you should hire them. And I say that because at one point, what is it? The Society for Compliance and Ethics Professionals said that higher education was one of the most complex industries in the world. And it is. So one org- one uh, university I worked for not only was I responsible for university operations, I was also responsible for the healthcare operations. So if you think about what that means, NCAA compliance, anything having to do with athletics, I could audit that. Anything having to do with student health center, we would audit that. We built an $85 million stadium. So guess who had to audit the bonding and the you know everything associated with that? Then you also have research that you do with the federal government. Some of it could be military-based research. So guess who audited grants, contracts, and research? Now, all of this has nothing to do with instruction. So then we audit components of construction, online delivery of classes. You had food venues. You had uh, dormitory facilities. All of that is just on the university side. Then you look at the healthcare side. I was the chief auditor for, we had two hospitals, a cancer research facility, and about 50 physician clinics. So now I understand the healthcare industry. You know, so it is complex, not only complexity in operations, but complexity in personalities that you deal with. If you look at most institutions of higher education, most people lean liberal. Most people speak with their their heart and not necessarily with its feelings over facts. Right. So now you have to know how to be extremely emotionally intelligent. Same thing with healthcare folks. So. It is extremely different from a corporate setting, too, because oftentimes your board members are donors to the organization. So you've really got to walk a fine line with what you say and how you say it. Whereas in corporations, um, I think a lot of things are a lot more regimented uh, because no one wants the SEC coming down on them. Right. Yeah. Uh, Or the PCAOB. So it's different. In a bunch of different ways, I think I just yeah. you know gave some pretty good examples. We uh we work with a lot of chief audit executives, like on the internal audit side. They want us to come into a cyber risk assessment or IT audits, and uh, I would say probably one of the most common questions or conversations that we have with audit executives of very complex organizations is really just how to do a risk assessment to select audit projects on a year over year basis. Like how do I get a good bundle of audit projects? 
when you are given the complexity of those those systems that you are part of as an executive how are you choosing projects? Like, how did you know where to dedicate your resources? Like, how did you do the stadium audit versus the, you know, infinite other types of projects that you could do? I mean, it all starts with your risk assessment methodology. If you don't have a sound methodology, then whatever you pick is going to suck anyway. Um, But you also have to know that as a chief auditor, you will never have enough resources to cover your entire landscape. So, you might have a ton of audits, a ton of uh, areas that are high risk. You're just going to pick some that it's part art, part science, right? Yeah. So you have some that are high, some that are low, some that are moderate. You're going to take a selection of those that are high risk, and then you're going to communicate to management. This is all that I can do with the current resources that I have. And you're going to ask that one critical question. Are you OK with this? Because if they're not, then it's up to them to get you more resources, either through hiring more staff or through co-sourcing or through outsourcing. Right. So you'll never get it right because there are too many things that can be audited. So you got to take that that science piece, which is your risk assessment. Take that art piece and say, I've got five items here that are high risk, which three are the most important. Then you get that agreement from management by being a good communicator. Here we had these five areas. I think we should look at these three. What do you think? So give them ownership in it. So they have a choice. Either they go with the three or they give you additional resources to handle all five. It really it really is just a dance and a game. When you're when you're doing these audits, so you do a risk assessment and you you pitch a handful of audit projects or you do an assessment and you have audit findings and you have to get management to agree to them and respond to them. There's like a whole process in navigating all the personalities that you have to deal with to make that happen successfully. And some people are intuitively just good at it. Other people are are terrible at it, frankly. And I've always kind of balanced when we train folks at Risk360, like do I let folks rely on intuition to navigate that and experience? Or do you try to develop some kind of framework to help walk people through it and help them be good at it? And a lot of the training I hear, see you doing is you kind of structure it. You help people be good at it. Now, that's an assumption on my part. What's your thoughts? Is that like intuition only or can you structure it? And if you can't structure it, how do you structure those conversations? It's a combination. Right? It's another one of those things in life. It's art and science. I think some people are just naturally gifted at it. Um, and let me say, I, I used to, I didn't know that I was naturally good at it. And I experienced a lot of success in my career. I was second in command and assistant vice president in an audit shop when I was in my mid to late 20s. And I just thought that was normal. I thought that was just the way that people progressed. I was starting an audit shop at a multi-million dollar bank that ended up becoming a multi-billion dollar bank. And I was still a young guy. Um, So I think some of it is intuition that can be taught, but I think there's certain elements that you have to have as well. Now, if you are one of those people that just strictly needs a process, you're going to fail because you got to have some natural instincts. If you are a person that can take a process and then combine that with some of your instincts, you'll be okay. Uh, Like for me, I went through this process of not knowing that instinctually I was pretty good at it. When I found out I was pretty good at it, you know how you puff your chest out. Oh yeah, I'm good at this. I can collaborate with anyone. And then I uh, had this one job at this one company where I wasn't as successful as I should have been or used to be. And I was like, well, what is going on? Then that's when I started to fine tune my process because I figured out, 
there's certain types of people that I don't work very well with. And uh, for example, people who are very manipulative, I don't work well with those kinds of people because I like to see the full picture and then I can tell you where I can plug in and help you. And then you can tell me, you know, it's a more honest dialogue. Um, I don't do well with people who are overly emotional. We all have emotions. We all need to be emotionally intelligent. Yes, that's the big buzzword. But when people make rash decisions out of emotion, I don't deal well with those kinds of people. Knowing what kind of people I deal best with, though, helps me to be better at my job, because what I'll do is if I'm the chief auditor and I see that I'm dealing with someone who's overly emotional, but yet I have a staff member that fits well with that kind of person. I'll step back in that relationship building effort and send the staff person who better aligns with the client. So, yeah, I, th I think it's a bit of both. Yeah, absolutely. So you have um, the book about asking questions. I, I love that concept. I think people could benefit from asking good questions in terms of active listening skills, like far beyond audit. And then you have a, another book that I haven't read, but the title is intriguing. It's called uh, Business Bullcrap, I think it's, is what it's called. Um, talk about that book. I think it was that was that your first or second book? I know that was a little earlier. That was uh, my first book. So I, I haven't read that book, but it feels like a manifesto, like something you want to get off your chest. So uh, I, that's a complete assumption. But what what is that book? What is it about? How did you arrive at it? I mean, honestly, I got tired of seeing crap in business environments. I So it, it's weird because everywhere I've worked, people have confided in me. And once I really discovered the role of an auditor, I started saying to myself, if people are confiding in the auditor, whatever's going on at the company must really be bad. Like, like well, right? Like, would you confide in, would that be the first person you would think to confide in as an auditor? Right? <laughs> Typically no, right? <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> that's when I first, I, I started to figure out, so I wrote that book in 2012, I think. Or maybe 13 or 14, something like that. I don't know. Um, so people would tell me their stories. And in many of my audit jobs, I was also responsible for managing the whistleblower hotline. So I got to talk to a lot of different whistleblowers. And when they would tell me some of the things that they were experiencing, I, I just I couldn't believe it. And um, then I started researching psychology. Any good auditor or any good person needs to really study psychology. And I don't mean necessarily from a school standpoint, but you start to see certain trends in people's behavior and you see the corporate bullies. You see the victims, but not victims. Right. Everybody's out to get them, but they're really manipulating the situation behind the scenes. And I started to see these personalities play out at places that I was working and I got tired of it. And I said, OK, this is a bunch of business bull crap. I was like, oh, that'd be good for a book. And so the book is 12 chapters and each chapter takes on a theme. Um, like, for example, one the title of one chapter is uh, Keeping Me Dumb Won't Delay My Departure. Keeping Me Dumb Won't Delay My Departure. And that experience was I was working for a company and I was a fairly new auditor, fresh out of school. And I didn't know what the Institute of Internal Auditors was, right? Every profession has a professional organization. I don't care if you're laying concrete or if you're driving a truck, there's some professional association. Found out what this association was and said to the boss, hey, why don't we get everyone in the department memberships to this organization? So this guy looks at me and he says, how about I just get you a membership? I said, well, but, but shouldn't we all be trying to get better at what we do? And he expressed to me that 
you know, if he got everybody memberships and everybody would start to perform well on the job and they might leave. I was like, what, what the hell is that? Like, how, how does that even make sense? Wouldn't you want your employees to be the best that they could be? So anyway, that was the impetus for that chapter. Keeping me dumb won't delay my departure because people are smart enough to recognize that something is wrong in their training and development. So anyway, each chapter has a theme. And then what I do is I tell a story, either a personal story or one that I've heard from someone else. And then I, I kind of walk through, here's some things you can do to improve it. Um, I call that my okay book because the themes are really, really good and the writing is okay. But over time, I've become a better and better writer, but people seem to like it when they read it because they resonate with the stories. Yep. So what I love the idea of themes and business themes. And uh, one thing that we're dealing with today is um, like all the politics at work, which uh, from from an audit perspective infiltrates that uh, totally. In terms of personalities, in terms of what's okay to say, what's not okay to say, how you deliver the message, and sometimes that can obfuscate the the, the criticality of an issue or what's really important. Yep. Um, what's your take on this from an audit executive? Like, how are you? Auditing tends to be naturally political because there could be jobs on the line. Often you're reporting an issue that uh, maybe someone wasn't doing their job, or they'll feel like they'll get in trouble over. How do you navigate that? How do you navigate the politics, the the emotions, things like that? Oh, man. Um, are you about ready for your podcast to be taken offline? Because <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to use foul language or anything like that. But here, here, here's the deal. You hear people in today's society talking about I'm just speaking my truth and I just needed to tell my truth. I don't give a crap about your truth. And when I say that, sometimes people they look at me like I'm crazy and they say, well, what about your truth? I don't give a crap about my truth either. My truth could be false. What I what I care about is the objective truth. And so for a chief auditor, I, I say this a lot. Auditors have to be in pursuit of the truth. The truth with a capital T-H-E, right? Um, what that means, though, is if you are at an organization that is emotionally led, you may lose your job or you may have to quit because someone else, everyone has a moral compass, Right. You can't let anyone else move your moral compass. If your moral compass is set on the truth, you need to keep moving towards the truth. So your question was, how do I deal with it? I deal with it in truth and honesty. Don't ask me a question if you don't want to know the truth. Now, if I'm presenting and, and, and on that same token, if I'm presenting something to you and I discover that I'm wrong or you help me discover that I'm wrong. First words that are going to come out of my mouth is I'm sorry. Let's take a look at what the truth is. And not everyone can do that. But every chief audit executive has to be brave. If you're not brave, then step down from your job, because that means that each day you go out there, your job is possibly on the line because you may find that someone is doing something and you may have to report it. Um, you may have to investigate people you don't want to investigate. So you have to be in tune with other people's emotions, but also be in tune with the truth. So I'm not saying go out there and be cold and heartless because I always tell people who work for me and or in my trainings, your clients, every process that they perform is personal. They spend eight hours a day, five days a week, if they're lucky, performing those processes. When you look at people's work, they refer to projects as their babies. You wouldn't yep. dare call somebody's baby ugly, would you? No. So you have to step gingerly, but you still have to step truthfully to people. 
And a lot of people who aren't assertive can't do that. They buckle under pressure or they're afraid of being fired or they're afraid of being liked. I don't care if you like me because I find that oftentimes you can respect someone that you don't like. I would much rather you respect me than like me. It's a really interesting phenomena because uh, the, the archetype of an auditor is one of two. You either have auditors who are so strict that, that they see everything black and white, so they come off very aggressive and very combative. And that kind of compensates for either sometimes a lack of security or, or a lack of subject matter expertise or a, a million yep. other reasons. So they're very aggressive. On the other hand, you have the pushover auditor who um, doesn't – isn't thorough, isn't fact-based, is highly subject to being influenced because maybe someone with the finding, you know, is worried about their job and they're like, hey, you don't want to report it that way. It's not a critical finding. That's really a low finding. Right. And But those two extremes represent the, a similar personality defect or lack of training. And that it's what you, when you said uh, confidence, I was like, you're right. It is like not confidence either in the subject matter or uh, inability to have empathy because you're worried about yourself over presenting the truth. Right. That's a that's a, that's a difficult situation to be into in, as an auditor because you have to see both sides of the story. You have to have empathy to understand that that's somebody's baby. That's their process. They're trying to own it. And, and also as an auditor, I might not have the whole story and I have to be okay admitting that and, right. and admitting that I'm not the expert. Or I'm, I'm letting important stuff get swept under the rug because I don't want to be the bad guy. And that's a really hard situation to navigate and you have to have a backbone to do it yeah well and it's funny that you talk about you you just said something about the pushover auditor and the uh aggressive auditor so in my book i talk about the four types of auditors and i i actually name one the pushover um i don't call one assertive what 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 do i call that one? Oh, the know-it-all so you have the know-it-all auditor the pushover auditor and um, I forgot the comfortable auditor, which is the one everybody wants to be. And then there's a fourth one that I've forgotten right now. But yeah, it's a it's a balance because when sometimes when people hear me talk, they think that I might be aggressive until they understand there's a difference between aggressive and assertive. Aggressive people will try and run you over by any means necessary. Your opinion does not count. Assertive people have strong opinions and beliefs, but also factually based logical conclusions. But they still respect you as a person and respect your opinion to the point where they will listen to it. And if you can bring something new to the table that's valuable, they will acknowledge it first and then change their mind. And that's where I am. I'm a very assertive person and I understand that and I'm okay with that. Yeah, it's interesting because some of the hardest situations that um, our team will get into when it comes to delivering security assessment findings is uh, being in a defensive posture where someone has you backpedaling. Like, you know, you've, you've done all the work and some of the stuff's extremely complicated. And uh, it's one of those pieces of knowledge that's kind of fleeting. Like you knew it in the instant that you were really deep into it. Everyone agreed. But then when it kind of got in writing, you know, everyone's poking holes in it, and then you're in this defensive mode where you have to explain and justify your decision and how you arrived at a situation. Or you're flat out wrong because you're presented right. new uh, facts and you're like, well, hold on a second. I need to reassess because I might not have my conclusion accurate. But that's very common in the audit space and also in the cybersecurity assessment space. And one thing that we're, we uh, coach team members on is how, how to uh, react in those situations. And the number one thing that that we make it okay is it's okay to be wrong. 
like just giving yeah. someone permission. Like one of the easiest ways to def- diffuse a situation is just to say, hey, man, like I, I very well might be wrong. This is your business. Like I was there for a few weeks. So uh, give me the new facts. Give me some additional information. Let me reevaluate. Like I'm perfectly comfortable being wrong. But it takes a certain amount of confidence and permission yep. to be wrong. And from my experience, the very best professionals, whether they be in physics or an awesome chef, whoever it is, the folks who can quickly admit they're wrong and then move forward, are those are the experts. You never see a non-expert or someone who's really bad at their job admitting they're wrong. It's always like the best folks. And I yeah. think that comes from a place of confidence. Well, I 100% agree. The, the biggest thing you can do when met with controversy or a, a, a cantankerous client is to ask a question. And one of the best questions that you can ask is, what do we have wrong here? And if they can clearly articulate what is wrong, you need to reassess it. But if they start what I if they start doing what I like to identify as ad hominem arguments, you either need to nip that behavior or you need to get away from them. When so, for example, if something is wrong and you point out that something is wrong to an audit client and the first thing they say is, well, why are you picking on us? Okay, wait a minute. What have I gotten wrong in this situation? Can you help me understand? Because like you just said, I could very well be wrong. Then they may say something like, you auditors are all the same. Well, now you're starting to allude to my character and not the facts that I presented. So I'm probably not wrong in this instance. But if they can say, look, you said that we did this on this date. However, here's some documentation that shows that we didn't. Now, that's a totally different conversation. But I will I have actually walked out of meetings before with uh, C-suite executives because I've told them you are not going to have a conversation with me where you're using adjectives. Somebody made the mistake of calling me a name and thought that that was going to be okay. No, I have more self-respect for myself than to allow that to happen. Either we're going to talk about the issue that's here or we're going to talk about why your feelings are hurt, because I can address those, too. If your feelings are hurt, I can tell you it's okay. I get it. Maybe you're surprised by this. Let's work through this together. But what you're not going to do is disrespect me or anyone that's on my team, because that doesn't make sense. We wouldn't do that to you. Yeah, I haven't done this before, but hearing you speak, I feel like a good technique for an auditor, maybe this can be your next book, is uh, is identifying like uh, argument types and then understanding how to deflect them, like logical fallacies. Like fallacies, you already mentioned ad hominem, and there's some there's other ones where you attack the person rather than the substance of the idea to deflect from it. But I feel like once uh, one of the reasons I love your book about uh, asking questions and talking about logical fallacies and things like that is because as a professional, once you identify a concept, like you have a name to it, then you can identify it in the wild and you know how to deal with it. So as an an executive or an auditor or or whatever profession you're in, when you have conflict and, and you spot that out in the wild, you're like, hey, that person's attacking me, not the idea, or that person's got this, not this. Then you can deal with it and it makes being a professional a lot easier. And, and I like books like you wrote because you can apply that same concept of identifying something and being able to deal with it in the audit profession, like asking good questions is very helpful. Yeah, but I, I think you've just given me a, an idea for the next chapter in the book to have an update. Because what I do, one thing I do in it is I identify the five different personality types and how to deal with them, right? So you have the uh, what the aggressive person, then you have the 
assertive person, then you have the passive aggressive person, then you have the passive person, then you have the manipulative person. So I talk about those different personality types and how to deal with each one from an audit standpoint. So I talk about things that they'll say and do. Like obviously the aggressive person is going to be up in your face. You know, they're going to they're going to use those at hominem arguments. They're going to do what I call the three D's. It's a three D person, right? They defend, deflect, deny. So when you see a person that's defending and deflecting and denying, you probably should run because one of the three is not too bad. But if this person has all three, you're probably dealing with somebody that's a little crazy and you need to step away until another day. Yeah, we have. uh, So uh, just the other day. I was in the office, so I've been on a month-long sabbatical, but I came in last week because we moved into a new office. I was in, um, briefly had one of my team members kind of approach me concerned, and they were like, hey, look, I just had a bad experience with the client. Uh, He felt like he had failed because the client attacked him. And uh, I was just like, look, man, when someone comes at you and they're using personal attacks and you know they're yelling or whatever it's not you there's nothing you can do professionally to make someone that mad it's it's other stuff in that person's life going on and and you're just the person that's the easy target to to take it out on and that little bit of assurance made him feel better because he was like yeah you're right like there's no reason i should have been name called but but even spotting little stuff like that out in the wild like you mentioned the aggressive person versus the assertive person when you can spot stuff like that and you have the maturity or experience to know hey man this ain't about me yeah. This is about that person. They have something going on. It gives you a little bit of empathy and you can you can tackle that stuff. So exactly. very important lessons for young professionals or any any professional, really. It's a good good reminder, no matter how experienced you are. So I want to move away. This is the last question. So um, if you can answer it, great. If you can't, because I'm putting you on the spot here, that's fine too. So um, we had – so Ryan McGowan, our chief revenue officer, he had an opportunity to speak with you uh, for a little bit. A few days ago then the other day we we did the pre-interview uh for this and 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 chatted for a few minutes and one of the things that struck me about yourself is you know auditing isn't in of itself a sexy profession like people don't look at it and say like that's that's awesome i'm going to be a the nfl superstar of auditing but you have turned it into something really cool that you're passionate about and you as an individual have a, an awesome outlook on life and a ton of positivity. And you, you bring that to the table on a niche profession. And I, I love that. I think it's awesome. So self-examining yourself, like how do you attribute that? How can a professional have that kind of enthusiasm? Where, where's your source of that kind of positivity? Oh, yeah. You know, that that's a really good question. I think a part of it is so a couple of things. And we, we talked about some of this earlier. I just I grew up with friends who we had nothing and we used our imagination a lot and we we dreamt dreamed whatever the right (laughs) I don't I don't know either (laughs) dreamt or dreamed whatever we we dreamed a lot Um, and we would always dream about doing bigger and better things in life we would dream about you know uh, one of us succeeding and grabbing everybody else and pulling everybody else up. We uh, we created a lot of things like when other kids were getting bicycles at Christmas, we were all sitting around trying to splice together different parts to build our own bicycles. So we were always dreaming about how to make things better. And to that extent, we were we were always kind of uh, optimistic and we celebrated small wins. 
Like we grew up playing sports together. We grew up, we, we hit puberty together. We learned about girls together. We learned about, you know, and then we saw people creating things that you celebrated. I grew up when hip hop was not around and I saw the first hip hop songs come out. And so it was all about partying and having a good time. And then it kind of changed to a little bit of activism, but we were taught to be creative. We were taught to tell stories. We were taught to have fun. And we were also taught, if you're going to do something, do it to the best of your freaking ability. And we were taught that the sky was the limit. There were no limitations on what you could do as long as you tried. And with that, I take that same approach. For me, auditing is the best thing that I could do because I give my best to it. And if I would, if I wasn't doing this, doing this, you know, and I said this to you one time before, doing this saved my life. I mean, where else would I be? So why would I not be the best auditor that I could be? Um, and I think so back to your question, I think some of that was the way that I grew up, the friends that I was around, the outlook that we had in life. If you're going to do something, you're going to be the best at it or you're going to try to be the best. Right. Um, and it was um, respect other people. Respect them and their boundaries, have some self-respect and just try hard and go all out and just leave it all out there. Again, when you have nothing to lose and everything to gain, you're willing to try everything. Um, Yeah, there's something special about having (laughs) it's it's close enough for me. I mean, there's something about having a deep appreciation for anything that moves the ball forward for you. Cause it's easy to yeah. take that stuff for granted. It's easy to take for granted that I'm an auditor or I'm a business owner or, or whatever it is that you do as a profession. But it's also easy not to take it for granted and say, look, I have a deep appreciation for this thing because it's helping me get somewhere very special in my life. And I'm, yeah. I appreciate it, I have gratitude for it. So well, you gotta uh, think I appreciate too. that so, gratitude. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go please. Well, so, so for me, I have to think about it like this. Auditing took me from living in a neighborhood where, you know, occasionally you'd hear a gunshot or two at night, which that ain't normal, to I eventually grew up and bought a home in a gated community. So why the heck would I not appreciate what it is that I do? You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. a it's it's a strong appreciation for not just auditing, but anything and anyone that has my best interest at heart. Yeah, absolutely. And anyone can apply that same lesson to any profession or anything that they've spent time doing, for sure. Absolutely. It's kind of a mindset. And I noticed that immediately about you, just that, that great mindset. So thank you for sharing. If you, anyone out there listening, if you guys like this kind of content, this positivity, speaking, you want to learn about auditing or just tips in the professional uh, setting, you can check out Robert at thataudityguy.com. Robert has... Uh, some curriculum out there where he does speaking events. There's on-demand training. There's also books. It's super easy to navigate if you go to the website and check it out. Uh, you can also check Robert out on LinkedIn. I guess you can just look up Robert Barry and you'll, you'll find him. You post a lot of good content on LinkedIn, so thank you for doing that. If you like this stuff, this conversation right here with me, Tuesday Morning Grind, we do this. Uh, we publish content every single Tuesday. You can check us out on YouTube. Just uh, YouTube search Risk360 and you'll find Tuesday Morning Grind. We're also on all the podcast apps. So whatever you listen to, you can find it there. Another initiative that we have as a firm at Risk360 right now is if you're going through a security journey and you're worried about any framework, whether it's ISO 27001 or SOC 2 or PCI or anything else, we're producing videos that go through every single aspect of those frameworks and we're posting them on YouTube for free so that everybody has that 
that content is free learning. So if you're trying to get through uh, learning of that stuff, you have questions, check us out on YouTube, engage with us, ask us to produce stuff. If you know good guests, recommend to us, and uh, we'd really appreciate that. So Robert, thanks again, man. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me.